You are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Walner, and I'm joined by Bobin Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. We're coming to you from, well, I'm coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts today, and Bobbin out in California. Uh, today is December 7th, 2021. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Let's dive into it. So I guess that's a good place to start, Bobbin. Let, let's tell everyone why you're out in uh, California and what you've been up to. Yeah, so uh, a quick recap. Like last week was AWS reInvent. I was on the show floor working the Portworks booth, had a lot of fun, had a lot of great conversations. And uh, because of that, I have my AirPods and not my regular microphone, so I'm, I apologize if if this sounds terrible. Uh, we'll fix it. Like we'll 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 make sure we, we I have the proper gear next time around if if we travel. But yeah, this week I'm I'm in California in our pure storage office in Mountain View. This is the first time after getting hired by Portworks slash pure storage that I've been in person in an office. It feels weird. Like I didn't see many people there. Uh, obviously, it was just our team the marketing team, but uh, being in the same room for a meeting and having to look around uh, while people are talking instead of just staring at a screen is definitely weird. So I'll, I'll get over it today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, you know, the world is definitely a bit different, but I'm I'm uh, super excited you're out there, everybody. Um, and you went to, didn't you go to some national park again? Since you yes. do that often, yes. <laughs> Yeah, so I had the weekend between reInvent and uh, and the, the California trip, and I was like, okay, what's what's the closest one that I can go to? And Zion National Park in Utah was, I think, the closest, two and a half hours away from Vegas, and it was the perfect weather. Like it's December, the crowds are not there. Uh, they even closed the shuttle, so you can drive your own car through the park. It's absolutely scenic. Uh, me and my wife, I think, ended up doing around eighteen miles of hiking. Uh, wow. In just two days, so like we we were, we were like super excited, super pumped, and now we are super tired. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but it, it was a it was a great weekend. Like really enjoyed it. That's amazing. I I'm super jealous. I've never been there. Um, you know, hope to get out there one day soon. But yeah, yeah next Vegas sounds... conference. There you go. The next Vegas <laughs> again. Since like last episode, I've never been to your event, so we'll just double down. We'll go. Yeah. Do that. <laughs> I've been to the Grand Canyon. Uh, and been to Las Vegas, just haven't been to those two things. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I haven't had nearly the uh, as eventful as, um, as a week or a weekend as you, as you had. I did go down uh, and cut down a Christmas tree with my family this week. Oh, nice. It's always fun. Um, and this year, I feel like I was treated 
because there was no, it was very like, this one's perfect. Let's just cut it down. It didn't take two hours. We didn't have to go to multiple uh, uh, farms. <laughs> like it's always a whole deal um, for the most part. But this year was very seamless. And I, I really do appreciate that. And, you know, if there's any other uh, dads and families that cuts down trees, I think you probably sympathize. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, it can be quite daunting for, uh, for whatever reason to go find a Christmas tree. But, so what's uh, the next step? Like, is it all set up? Is it oh, all yeah. decorated? Yeah, we, yeah, we bring it home. We put it. Uh, I put it in water right away. Do a fresh cut because we make a. Uh, we custom make a uh, ornament out of the tree stump every oh, year. So we have okay. basically like a history of all our trees, and we write something on it. Like last year, um, it was something about the pandemic, kind of cheeky mm-hmm. uh, that we wrote on there, <laughs> and we laminate nice. it. Not laminate it. We uh, we lacquer it now, all the stuff, and make it kind of last a long time. So. Um, yeah, it's all decorated now. We do a whole family thing. We have a family tradition of uh, that started with uh, my wife's family that uh, mm-hmm. basically eat a bunch of junk food and decorate oh. the tree. Uh, <laughs> and so I can get down with that. Um, and it's always a good time. But um, nice. yeah, that's that's what I've been up to. I, there's been a lot going on in the ecosystem, though. I think we should jump over to that. Um, why don't we start with some of the news out of reInvent that you have here? You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Yeah, reInvent is always a fun time, right? Busy news week. Uh, again, there, there were like so many announcements, but we'll just focus on Kubernetes and maybe a bit of storage. But that's it. Like we won't, we are not here to cover the whole uh, recap for AWS reInvent. Uh, the first thing, uh, let's let's just kick it off, right? The first thing was uh, AWS Marketplace for containers anywhere. So now, since AWS is talking about hybrid cloud and with their EKS anywhere or EKS on outposts offering. Uh, they are extending their marketplace offering. So vendors can now have validated and certified offerings on this new marketplace, uh, which have been tested and validated for those hybrid use cases. So I can buy a license from, or I can subscribe to the uh, solution from AWS marketplace and get integrated billing, flexible payment options, longer term contracts, all of those, all of the goodness of AWS marketplace, but for my on-prem workloads as well. And if I move it to the to AWS, I can still reuse the same license. So uh, it, it definitely supports the migration use case between uh, on-prem and AWS. Uh, second thing that I wanted to highlight was uh, pull-through cash uh, repository for ECR. So. Uh, all of us use Docker Hub, and if you don't have like an enterprise account, we know that there are limits that you hit uh, when you try to pull a lot of images con- con- continuously. Uh, now you can have uh, images pulled down to ECR, uh, and uh, you get benefits like the image scanning feature that ECR has, the IM and KMS integrations that ECR has. For all the images that you're pulling from public repos, you can also ha- use AWS private links, so like you're not uh, pulling down images from the internet, like you're still pulling it down from a secure source. So uh, that that was another interesting thing that I came across. The third thing was AWS Carpenter. So when I first about heard about this, I thought this is this was a brand new announcement. But then when I like 
read up on it and looked at a couple of demos i realized okay aws has been talking about it for the past year and they also did they also included a demo around it, around carpenter during kubecon in october uh, but now they say that carpenter is production ready what is carpenter carpenter is an open source uh, and flexible kubernetes cluster autoscaler so if you uh, start deploying pods which don't have enough capacity on your ec2 instances that are part of your eks cluster Carpenter can create new EC2 instances, add it to your EKS cluster, and then provision the pod. And all of this happens in a matter of seconds. So if you have a pod, a new pod that needs a GPU, or if you have a pod that needs the uh, that wants to run on the new Graviton processor-based EC2 instances by, by using labels, you can just your developers can just deploy those and carpenter on the back end will create those ec2 instances added to your cluster and then schedule those pods on it so like carpenter is super cool uh, you can start using it in production today that was the main highlight like okay carpenter is ready for everybody to use it and it's not just uh, an open source project that we are still trying to figure out what, what it can and can't do but yeah those are like some of the key ones uh, from a keynote uh, that I uh, virtually attended, uh, that Werner Vogel does, uh, a good uh, takeaway on the new stack uh, blog was the six rules for good API design. Uh, and again, uh, as part of the video, Werner does go through the fact that since AWS teams are so customer driven and customer focused, uh, all of them basically uh, follow customer requirements to design APIs, and there are, there is no central way AWS does APIs, which is great for individual services but if i'm a developer who's trying to use all like 10 different aws services i have to use and, and learn about how each of those apis have been defined for individual services so now uh Werner listed six different design principles that everybody should follow and these are actually good like things like apis are forever so make sure that you design uh, them in such a way never break backward compatibility so uh, even if you keep adding new features, make sure you support it because like AWS, right? Uh, vendors do build on those APIs. And if you change anything and if you break backward compatibility, there are there will be business impacts for your customers. So if you're creating new APIs, make sure that, or you're adding new features, make sure you don't break backward compatibility. Uh, the third one was work backwards from customer use cases. So like identify what the customers are actually want to do with this and not just assume internally because your use case might be different from actual customer use cases. Uh, make sure you have good documentation. They, the APIs are self-describing. So like it shouldn't, like the, the, the verbs that you actually use should mean, uh, should have some, some meaning that is easily interpretable for users uh, create explicit failure modes and then avoid leaking implementation details at all costs so like these are good uh, uh, design principles to follow when designing your own apis so do check out that keynote and we'll link to the new stack article uh, in our show notes as well um, and just three more and then we'll hand it over to ryan so uh, uh, announcements around ebs so now you have a new recycle bin functionality for ebs snapshot so uh, organizations do delete snapshots uh, when they see a huge amount on your monthly bill. Now, RecycleBin adds that extra layer of protection, so you don't accidentally delete a snapshot that you didn't want to. Uh, you can move it to the RecycleBin and see if anybody complains, and then you can restore from it if needed. Uh, another enhancement around EBS was uh, EBS snapshot archive. So if you want to keep that snapshot around for longer without paying a lot for it, you can basically archive it into a lower cost storage tier and have that EBS snapshot live forever. Uh, and then the last one around storage was uh, around S3 Glacier. So 
uh, what we have known about Glacier is, okay, it's perfect for archival, but it takes a lot of time to recover from a Glacier snapshot. Uh, now they introduced a new class of S3 called S3 Glacier Instant Retrieval Storage class, which basically means that in, instead of waiting four to five hours to retrieve anything from Glacier, you can retrieve these things from uh, Glacier for in a few in a matter of few seconds to a minute and obviously it comes with a, a different cost with itself but it definitely opens up certain use cases uh, for vendors like us so I think that's it for me from reinvent and, and back up <laughs> Ryan what about you like you you were here focusing on Kubernetes uh, what do you have for us yeah no I one that I did want to call out is the sort of new EBS uh, snapshot capability to use that storage, which, you know, if you're a listener of the show, you know, a lot of these DR and, and backup scenarios you have on Kubernetes, you often take lots of snapshots. Mm -hmm. uh, and are, those aren't always the cheapest, you know, types of storage, especially in AWS, to sort of leave sitting around. So optimizing those, and Bobby, you did a blog on how to optimize those based on the type of snapshots and how many replicas, you know, mm -hmm. get uh, used on the on the cluster. And, you know, the, the EBS um, kind of tier for long-term storage allows you to kind of offload to that glacier uh, piece, which is, you know, often something maybe overlooked at first, but definitely as you start growing and you're like, wow, all, this, all these snapshots are really adding up, I know uh, it will be something to look at. So definitely something interesting there. I didn't get a chance to look at Carpenter, but that looks really interesting. You know, the, the fact that it looks at um, uh pods that are trying to be scheduled inherently mm -hmm. has me question you know why are we why are we looking at things that are why are we failing to do that in the first place <laughs> um, it seems like carbon is a great use case for some kind of ai to tap into um, yeah. maybe a devops tool to say these are the things that are going to be scheduled not mm -hmm. just i've scheduled them and they can't be scheduled so then we go just in time you know kind of take it to the next step but uh like following up on Carpenter, right? Like one of the good things is it allows you to leverage spot instances. Like if you have workloads that like are sporadic in nature and can be used with spot, you can just specify the tag and it will uh, try to provision EC2 instances from the spot pool that's available in your region. And so you don't have to pay as much for the same compute. Yeah, that makes sense. Really cool tool, though. I'm going to definitely uh, click on the link you put in here that we'll put in the show notes as well and listen to it myself. Uh, for, for me, I, you know, um, a little more on this later, but this will be the last show of 2021. Big news oh. there. We'll, we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit more at the, at the end of the episode. But um, Kubernetes 1.23 is slated to come out, I believe, next week. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of uh, things volume related in there. And I just wanted to touch on those, um, you know, in terms of how your applications are being used. So one of them is um, you know, the auto-remove QVCs function created by Staple Sets. allows you to kind of uh, set this volume clean retention policy within the Staple Set. and allows you to, um, uh, when deleted and when scaled, to do certain things with volumes. Definitely something that gives you a little more control over um, how, how that works. There's been a lot of um, work on the uh, recovering from resize failures. Now, resizing your volumes is something that um, um, is probably fairly new in the industry, but uh, you know the way to automate that and letting Kubernetes resize things under the covers as your application grows. If you have a failure during that scenario, you're in this weird spot, right, where um, your your volume is going to be stuck in uh, a weird state or possibly it's not supported and um, this has gone from graduating uh, this has graduated to alpha 
which is recovering from use size failures, uh, and really focuses on um, uh, the the enhancements around uh, users re uh, reducing PVC size mm -hmm. as well. You know, if that if that happens to fail. So really cool stuff there. Um, you know, I know at our day job that is comes really uh, into play with a lot of our automation as well. So definitely taking a look at those. Um, honoring recreating policies, another one, I'm not going to go into every one of these, um, non-recursive volume ownership uh, for the uh, file system group. There's, um, you can config that, uh, config FS group policy in CSI. So there's a lot of changes in CSI as well. I think there's like 20 or so here. Um, uh, but definitely take a look at the, the notes for 123 uh, in regards to storage and, and things like that. Um, I know Windows, privileged containers, things like that is graduating to beta. So lots of good stuff in there. We won't necessarily cover it, probably, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because we're going to be into January by the time we have a next episode. Uh, so I want to make sure and link to uh, an early article from Sysdig that came out uh, and talk about it. Um, yeah, I need to read up on that too. 1.23 sounds exciting. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It does. It does. Um, so, without further ado, though, we will jump into today's episode. We do not have a guest for today. Uh, today's episode is really focused on Kubernetes objects. Um, we'll talk about what they are uh, and which ones actually use storage. So, I think this kind of uh, takes a step back and looks back towards that one-on-one level uh, of conversation um, that often gets overlooked, I think. So we wanted to spend some time that um, to really dig in to what are those objects. You know, mm -hmm. Maybe we can even provide a list here. And which ones use storage, how they differ, you know, which ones use storage classes. You know, we covered sort of you know, storage 101, but we didn't really dig into each individual thing here because you know, we often deal with deployments and SQL sets, which we talk about, but there are a lot of things uh, in that um, in the Kubernetes ecosystem that uses storage. So uh, I think a good place to start is, you know, what is a Kubernetes object? Um, you know, we'll, we'll start there to say, you know, we're because we're going to talk about uh, Kubernetes objects that use storage, let's start there. Now, an object in, in most cases, if you've dealt with Kubernetes, you know it as a YAML file. But really what that is, it's a, it's a persistent, entity, right, a piece of data that gets stored in etcd in this case, um, that Kubernetes uses to represent the state of something. So the state of something could be a system resource, a container, a containerized application in a pod, uh, a node, right? It's, it's basically describing what, uh, what type of resource is actually within Kubernetes. It's a it's a record in, uh, in sense, and because it's a record, uh, a lot of times these uh, objects are used as sort of a way to describe intent. Right? I'm going to create an object that describes a piece of uh, a pod or a container or a piece of storage, 
I'm going to send it to Kubernetes, and it's going to have to figure out what I'm describing in there based on a, a set of standards. Um, and we, we, you know, if you if you ever look at the top of the YAML file, there's usually an API version and things like that. And based on those versions, it'll say, oh, this this is what this piece, this object wants to do. So then it will go ahead and eventually uh, uh, create uh, that resource uh, in the cluster. And that's sort of what we call a little bit of eventual consistency is that you kind of send it off uh, and then it does its thing uh, to get to a desired state. So just think about an object as a way of describing something that gets you to your desired state. I think if I were to boil it down into maybe a sentence, that would be how I describe it. What about you, Baba? Yeah, uh, I, I like your description, right? It's a record of intent that uh, once you specify it using a YAML file, uh, Kubernetes scheduler will always you uh, like check the spec for that object and use its reconciliation loop to make sure that the status max the spec. So uh, in addition to API version, you, you specify things like the kind of object, the metadata, yes. so you can give it a name. If you want to restrict it to a specific namespace, you can specify that too. And then specification or the spec section is where you provide those additional level of details that are used as the desired state for your Kubernetes object. So Kubernetes objects, everything that we talk about in our day-to-day -day lives, in, in all of our podcast episodes, from pods to storage classes, to volumes, to deployments, and et cetera. Uh, all of those are, end of the day, just Kubernetes objects. So that's a good one one. Yeah, absolutely. And and those big things you want to look at in each one of these files is that API version, the kind, as you mentioned. Because mm -hmm. kind is a really good one to look at because it really gives you the object you're trying to create, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a service. It's a... Uh, uh, deployment, it's a pod, right? That'll be the kind. And then there's the metadata namespace and spec, uh, spec obviously. The spec's so vastly different between every object that it's, it's <laughs> you know, that's, that's the place to really dig in once you know what kind of object you're going yep. to uh, really create. So, you know, that hopefully gives you a sense of, you know, what a Kubernetes object is. And what we're going to focus on today is workload resources, because for the most part, Workload resources or workload objects, I'll call them, in Kubernetes are the things that consume storage. And the reason being is because what consumes storage? Workloads, right? <laughs> <laughs> pretty straightforward. Uh, at least when I read through this from the, the mm -hmm. second time, you know, we, we kind of use these as second nature, but uh, looking through all the Kubernetes documentation, um, it, this all you know, comes together. So workload resources are pretty much anything that runs um, some sort of uh, compute uh, and, uh, you know, has the ability to consume storage. It doesn't have to, right? Uh, for yep. instance, uh, I think the most basic um, object I think we can, we can talk about first is a pod uh, yep. in terms of workload objects. And that pod is uh, a really a core unit of understanding Kubernetes, and it's a collection of containers. So if you know what containers are, or if you're familiar with Docker, that that Docker container runs an application, well, a pod can actually run many containers, right? Yeah, it's uh, like it, an atom. Like, pod yeah, is atom, exactly. and then you can have your electrons and neutrons and everything. So okay. those are different containers that are part of the atom. It's like the smallest divisible unit in Kubernetes. Exactly. Uh, and uh, each one of those containers in the pod spec, right, we talked about, you know, pod being the kind in this case, the pod spec being the, the spec that's needed to define what a pod is, uh, each container can have a number of different things. We're not going to go into every one, um, but uh, one of those section is, sections is volumes, 
Um, so uh, volumes, again, is uh, many things in Kubernetes, right? If, if we dive into what a volume is in Kubernetes, um, you know, we talk about persistent volumes, mostly on this show. Um, uh, maybe some bit of host volumes, uh, but, but Kubernetes uh, defines many types of volumes, right? Persistent volumes, projected volumes, something I was just talking to Bob about, I've never used before, but it's something really cool. Projected volumes is um, a way to map several uh, existing volume sources into one directory. Uh, oh, so interesting. You can, have, you can have like a secret a config map, a downward API, a service token even, and just put it into one directory, which, um, you know, it only supports a certain amount of those today. I think there was four. Um, but if you think about the capability that that really is driving at, it's super cool. Um, like, if anybody from our audience is using those, like, please hit me up. Like, I want to learn more about this. Like, I'm, I'm just like, how are you using this? I just want to know more. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, these are all really good. And uh, we won't go to everyone's, but there's ephemeral mm -hmm. volumes. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, you know, we'll mostly host volumes, those kind of things. Um, we'll mostly talk about persistent volume. So, yeah. um, in, in, and when we say that is, you know, in our one-on-one episode uh, for storage in Kubernetes, it really talks about um, storage provisioners that have some type of uh, provisioner and storage class that, you know, provision PVCs and PVs. Um, that's really what we'll focus on. Um, but again, right, pod uh, can have volumes, and that volume can be many things. But again, it's a uh, object in Kubernetes, probably the most uh, straightforward and base unit uh, that you can think of uh, that consumes storage. Uh, I would say the the other one I have on the list here that's sort of at that level is a job, right? Mm -hmm. So. Uh, a job is is really it also runs a, a pod, uh, yep. or at least a container, right? I think it might actually run. A, yeah, so a job yeah. spec has a pod template spec. So yep. putting these two together, a job is actually something that runs a pod, which uh, runs a container that does something, right? The difference mm -hmm. is that jobs are uh, typically run as cron jobs, a collection of jobs, one off, right? They're not. They're not longer lived uh, mm -hmm. uh, types of compute resources, but you know a job may need some kind of external information that's stored in a volume um, and can consume a volume as well. And and I think you know that's just another level of 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 type of uh, resource. Again, this would be a kind of job, right? Yeah. Um, and I believe in that job uh, template spec, you have the full gamut of volumes available to be used, but um, I'll have to double check that. <laughs> um, so, yep. you know, that's those are base units. I think what we need to now go into is, okay, a pod is great because it's a single thing and may run mm -hmm. multiple containers, but how do you combine many pods, right? We talk about distributed databases. We talk about, you know, other types of applications that have multiple containers. How do you coordinate those, right? Um, and, I, yeah, and, and this is this is where something like deployment and staple set comes in. So I'll let you jump into that. Yeah. So uh, as as you said, right, like pod does one thing really well, but then uh, when you are running distributed applications, if you need multiple replicas, if you want to change be between different versions, all of those are made simple. All those operations are made simple by using a deployment object. So similar to how you described a job, uh, a job has a pod spec, deployment has a pod spec too. So when you create a deployment object, it will actually like to do the actual work. It will uh, create pods in the background. 
using another layer of abstraction called replica sets. Uh, but deployments not just help you define how many replicas you need for a specific pod. So you can have uh, a MySQL instance with uh, a primary and a secondary node, uh, part of a deployment or a, or a stateful set for that matter. Uh, you can have different versions. So if you have an application that's running V1, uh, by using a deployment object, you can upgrade it to a version two, uh, and you can have a, a, an upgrade policy, whether you want to, how much downtime or how many pods can you take down to upgrade to the new version. All of that you can specify as part of the deployment specification. And again, uh, since it uses pods under the covers, you can still attach persistent volumes and dynamically provision those to store any any data that the pod might generate. Yeah, and, and that's a good point, right? Deployment, um, you might be asking yourself, why use the deployment instead of the pod, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that those are key points in saying that orchestrating many pods is a replica set. Now, we're not talking about replica, set, replica sets uh, by themselves. They don't really use storage Technically, they just you know have multiple pods and they orchestrate those. But then the deployment allows you to kind of declare um, and manage updates across all those replica sets mm-hmm. and the pods within them. Um, and so it really it really adds to the orchestration and behavior capabilities of Kubernetes of managing an application. And I would say in most cases, if you're using Kubernetes for the first time, a deployment spec. Is, is a really good way to start, right? Yeah. Um, if you create a pod, you create a pod spec, but it's it's probably not the the most common way to run an application because it's sort of a one-off. It's more of a uh, you have to manage manage certain things about it, uh, which is mm-hmm. a little more difficult. But deployment spec, I think, is probably a really good way to start. And within that, there uh, within deployment spec, there's the pod template spec, right? Uh, which basically is a pod spec. So if you're familiar with one, you basically can put uh, those within there. And those use, again, use is where you define all those volumes uh, and PVCs and and those kind of things within Mm -hmm. them. Um, And in those deployment specs where you define the volumes, often um, it'll reference what uh, persistent volume claim to use. And this is important because you're not really defining uh, defining, a, you're not saying the storage class to provision the volume in there, right? Usually the the, the provisioning of, of the volume itself is done through uh, a different set of YAML files and objects, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is the storage class, the PV and the PVC. Mm-hmm. In the deployment, you'll just reference basically the name of that PVC and the mount points and things like that, which slightly differs from how stateful set does it. Um, uh, and that's the reason I'm bringing it up now. Um, so if you're familiar with the PVC and stateful set and storage class kind of workflow, right? You create a storage class, you have a PVC that references the storage class, and then the PV gets created as the physical thing from the PVC that references the storage class. Big old full circle there. <laughs> and and I, we won't go into depth because we did cover this in an earlier episode. Definitely mm-hmm. go take a look into that if you want to dig into that. Um, but the next one that we're going to talk about is stateful set, which is, uh, I would call an evolution of people using stateful things on Kubernetes. What would you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, definitely. Like uh, when you're deploying those distributed databases, you need the master nodes and the worker nodes to come up in a specific order and always have those entities associated, or identities, not entities, identities associated with those. And stateful set is how you do it. So uh, the first pod will always be a dash zero or a master. And uh, once that comes up and is fully online, that's when the other worker nodes or 
secondary nodes for that database are brought online. So Stateful Set helps you always uh, maintain a, an order when it comes to deploying your distributed databases. Yeah, and, and this is, right, this, and the reason I called it an evolution before mm -hmm. is exactly because of that. Because people were, you know, orchestrating complicated and complex stateful things uh, that needed some kind of uh, order um, uh, associated with them. You know, you know, this cloud comes up first, then this one comes up second, and talks mm -hmm. to the first one, and, and those kind of things where you, you know, an example would be, you know, a seed node in a Cassandra ring. Um, yeah. and, and needed they needed more from stateful components. And so stateful set came to be uh, to create that artificiality and um, an extra orchestration. Now, in that object, there is something called a volume claim templates um, mm -hmm. list, which is basically a list of PVCs. So the difference in this case is actually in the stateful set, you'll reference, you know, create these volumes based on the storage class. So storage doesn't have to pre-exist. You don't have to have a separate YAML file for the, you know, for the storage class of the PVC in, in your set of uh, objects. It can just be right in there to say, provision this type of volume, this size and everything from the mm -hmm. storage class right in your staple set. Um, and it actually streamlines the, I think, the process pretty well. Now, you'll still have to definitely take into consideration what that storage class is doing. Um, in terms of retaining things on deletion, etc., you know, we t talked about this in 123. There's some you know, new uh, capabilities around that uh, because stable sets are, you know, uh, their own their own beast. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you'll definitely have to practice with them and get to know how they manage the storage and, and what expectations they have. Um, because I also believe stable you know, stable sets can they by default uh, try to put a uh, pod on individual nodes, if I remember correctly as well, um, just because of the nature of them. But I don't think they have to. Possibly yeah, I think maybe we can use uh, affinity and anti-affinity rules right. to en enforce that. But yeah, again, that's something that you can add to your specification and Kubernetes will provision those pods on different nodes if that's what you want or on the same node if that's what you want. Exactly. So uh, a step a step I would say in a similar direction is something called a daemon set. Right? We have a staple set and a daemon set. I wanted to mention this because um, you know daemon set, while they often don't reference PVCs and, and storage mm -hmm. in, in a way, they do have the capability to define volumes, right? And mm -hmm. the reason being is because a daemon set in its name, it's it's typically run to uh, used to run a daemon on a node, something like yep. um, you know cron or dns or you know time sync or whatever uh, those types of tools um uh, even many of the cloud native storage providers have run yeah. their own software as a daemon set because it has to run on every worker node so you have mm -hmm. a daemon set defined on every worker node run the same thing on every worker node that way if it scales your, your whole kubernetes scales it'll just add a pod to that replica set as a daemon um now uh, would you want to use PVCs in a daemon set? I personally don't have experience with it, um, but um, you know it's, it is capable of doing that and mm -hmm. using volumes. I think more common more common to a daemon set because it is a is a daemon on the host typically is that it defines volumes like host paths and things like that to say well, look in this place on every you know every node uh, because there's some system process configuration yep. there or something like that. Um, so maybe honorable mention demon set here. <laughs> uh, I did read into this specifically. I was like, can you actually define PVC? Yeah, you absolutely can. Yeah. So, um, and that I think is the way you know some providers like uh, I believe even 
Seth and Rook uh, mm-hmm. to find like BBCs and their OSDs and things like that. But um, pretty interesting stuff. So I think that's the list, right? As a recap, yeah. we had um, <laughs> workload resources, and those were pods, jobs, deployments, staple sets, and human sets. Um, and that we covered as basically the main ones you really want to dig into to that use storage and volumes. Mm-hmm. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Uh, and I know that we had a note here to talk about a little bit about storage classes. So do you want to yep. jump into that before we, you know, um, yeah. move from Sure. Uh, so uh, again, uh, as Ryan said, right, we have covered... Uh, the whole logic about how you can dynamically provision persistent volumes using storage classes and persistent volume claims, and then your pods can actually use the PVs or persistent volumes that have been provisioned. Uh, we just wanted, since this is a one-on-one episode, we wanted to cover the different things that you can specify as part of a storage class definition and a persistent volume claim definition, and what those different terms actually mean. So similar to how a pod has the API version, metadata, uh, spec sections, all of those still apply here. Uh, but for a storage class, you can specify additional things like a provisioner. So a provisioner is nothing but uh, a, a way to specify which volume plugin to use to provision a, a persistent volume. So this can be Amazon EBS. Uh, it can be Google Cloud Persistent Disk. It can also be Portworks for that matter. And that's the name of the provisioner. You also have things like reclaim policy. So reclaim policy is what happens when the persistent volume is deleted. Do we uh, retain the, the the PVC or we delete it? And uh, like by default, you can set a specific thing. Uh, but again, that's something that you can specify as well. Uh, in addition to it, you can also uh, specify a volume binding mode. And there are two options for this. One is immediate. So as soon as a PVC object is created, uh, a persistent volume is provisioned, and it doesn't take into account any pod constraints uh, like node affinity, anti-affinity, all of those rules. Uh, Whereas uh, some of the provisioners do allow you to specify wait for first consumer as the uh, volume binding mode. And this is where your pod gets scheduled first uh, based on the resource requirements, the, the node requirements, and then a persistent volume is provisioned accordingly and attached to the pod. So uh, different settings that you can play around with uh, as part of a storage class definition. And then finally, you have the parameters section, which will d- differ for each vendor that's providing storage for Kubernetes. For Portworx, for example, we have things like the type of file system you want, the number of replicas you want to store, whether you want a different IO priority and IO profile, snapshot schedule, whether you want it to be a shared V4 volume or not. So the addition, like you can, each vendor can provide its additional parameters or additional offerings using the parameters section. And you as the administrator can go ahead and configure the storage class and have these defined. So whenever a PV is being asked for, a PVC is being created, it will inherit all of these different uh, settings that you have configured as part of the storage class definition. 
and like that's it for storage class uh, for persistent volume claim uh, again in addition to api version kind and metadata you can specify additional things in the spec section which is access mode so whether you want to read write once or read write many volume a file or a block uh, the resource request so how much storage do you actually want uh, the name of the storage class again you can link it back to a storage class that has been deployed or defined by your administrator if you don't specify a name the default storage class for your cluster will be used so you'll still get storage if a default class is configured but you won't get a, a storage that you might actually like need for a specific type and then uh, that's how like if you are not using storage class for provisioning or dynamically provisioning volumes if this is a pv that has been pre-provisioned by administrator and you are just using a pvc object you can have selectors as well that point to the pre-created pv so those are all the different settings that you can play around with when you're dealing with storage classes and persistent volume claims and with that i think we are ready to wrap without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, I think so. I think we covered a lot there, right? So uh, as, as a real kind of quick takeaway here, um, you know, definitely learn what an object is in Kubernetes, that it's, you know, a record of intent for a desired state. And those objects um, uh, have various use cases, workload resources, a workload object we talked about today are, are typical to, to the ones that consume storage, that being pod, job, deployment, staple set, daemon set. And some of those can use various types of volumes. Some of them um, can use um, storage classes that produce volumes they can use. And storage mm -hmm. classes and PVCs and everything have their own sort of, uh, you know, um, types of parameters to consider about what type of storage is actually given to those workload resources. And yeah, I think that's a, that's a good summary of what objects yeah, I know. Like, it's good to go back to school sometime and, and cover these 101 <laughs> topics uh, because we definitely get questions, right? As part of our day job, and even uh, listeners to this episode uh, have reached out to us and asked about like doing more 101 content. So, when we are not talking to guests or covering any specifically capsule events, we'll definitely spend more time on similar topics and then dive deeper into into some of these 101 things that we often overlook. So, uh, I'm excited to doing more of these in the future. Yeah, me too. Speaking of which, uh, this is the last episode of 2021 I mentioned earlier. We will be back in uh, January, um, uh, early January, with our first episode of Season 2. I think we're slated to dive into Tanzu again. Um, yes. But I hope everyone uh, who has been listening, uh, first off, thank you. Um, and secondly, you know, definitely go ahead and message us, review us, mm -hmm. let us know, uh, you know, what you thought of season one, what do you want to hear for season two? What did you like? What didn't you like? Send it all. We want to hear it. We're, we're here to really dive into more in the cloud native storage ecosystem and we're excited for season two. Yeah, happy holidays, everyone. And if you meet somebody in the infrastructure or Kubernetes ecosystem, share this podcast with them. That's one call to action I have. Thank you for listening to the Kubernetes Bytes podcast.